Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Robotics Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Yes, my name is uh, Davide Scaramuzza. I'm a professor of robotics and computer vision at the University of Zurich, where I work on uh, autonomous navigation of uh, visually guided drones. And I work on topics uh, across uh, computer vision, uh, path planning, uh, machine learning, and more. Great. So thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast. Uh, I would like to go first when you were a child. How was your childhood related to science or how it's just fire imagination about uh, robotics or any intelligent system, if you remember something. I do, I do actually, I do remember actually pretty well. I think I started uh, uh, the, being interested in science since I was uh, three years mm. old. Wow. Um, from uh, Star Wars, I remember my father took me to see the, one of the first Star Wars movies in the cinema. But also my father was very inspiring because he was uh, telling me always uh, bedtime stories about uh, a little robot. So, so he, he would make up the stories. So, so the, the stories were about a, a robot mm. uh, called Little Robot, by the way. And so that, this was very inspirational, but also both my parents uh, always uh, trying to um, persuade me, you know, uh, to, to trigger my interest in science uh, because they were both teachers, uh, math or physics teachers. So we always, uh, I was always a little bit, uh, you know, involved in science. Then later I studied um, uh, electronics engineering at the university and it was actually all triggered by, by my childhood. I remember when I was uh, uh, 10, I, I started working on uh, electricity, electric circuits. Mm-hmm. So basically I, I remember I, I used to go and collect books from uh, older friends or older relatives who had already studied at the high school or university. And uh, I remember I was very interested in reading these books in order to anticipate uh, knowledge that I would actually learn uh, five years later uh, in high school or or at the university. So Mm -hmm. I was always interested in this. So I would like to go back uh, when you started working realistically in robotics field. What was the first robot you built? The first robot I built uh, um, in my studies was actually during the master thesis uh, mm-hmm. uh, at the University of Perugia, Italy. Uh, there I worked on a differential drive robot, so a robot with two wheels, uh, and the robot was actually pre-built, so I was bought. Uh, I was a thing that was called Pioneer. And then uh, my task was about designing uh, the stereoscopic vision system to allow this robot to to recognize the features uh, and then localizing space. So then I started working on, on the topic of SLAM, which is about simultaneous localization and mapping. I implemented this uh, all on, uh, on, on a laptop, and then I deployed this uh, on a robot that was able to basically go from the office to the elevator. Mm-hmm. That was uh, the thing, the first time. Yeah. <clears throat> so since you had this overwhelming experience, I would like to ask you, what are the most misconceptions you have witnessed while you work, since your work is instruction from robotics and artificial intelligence as well. So what is the most misconception you witnessed in your field? Interesting. Um, the most misconception is about, uh, in general, what I find when I, when I, when I talk about robotics in, uh, to some uh, normal audience or non-expert mm-hmm. uh, people, I mean, the main misconception is always, you know, uh, uh, robots will eventually kill our jobs. That's actually the main misconception. What do you think the most important question that the community should focus on for, for our field, for robotics and artificial intelligence intersection? Ooh, there are many topics that the community should focus on. The community, in my opinion, should focus on very hard problems to solve, like, you know, the next moonshot. Mm-hmm. So um, work on very hard problems. So that, that ranges from um, completely new sensors that, have not, that do not exist, um, new materials, um, 
for example, dexterous manipulation uh, that is similar to the to the human uh, to the human uh, manipulation capabilities, rather than still uh, uh, relying on these uh, two finger robots, for example, that is very far from what uh, humans or animals are capable. I would suggest to work, for example, also on uh, very hard perception problems. So I am a perception person. I work on robot perception. And one of the biggest, uh, uh, hardest challenges is actually how to make robots able to to navigate in the environment, uh, um, in any environment, harsh environments. So where there are harsh visibility conditions uh, like dust, uh, smoke, uh, fog, uh, and so on, especially for autonomous driving and uh, autonomous drones, autonomous uh, airplanes as well, for example. There are many, many unsolved problems in robotics, uh, uh, but not many people that are working on that, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. Also, decision-making, uh, there is a lot of things to do, for example, to render autonomous uh, uh, cars and drones completely um, reliable. In general, the problem of uh, today, the 2020 challenge, is actually uh, robustness, you know? And many people think that robustness uh, is a, a job for industry uh, players, but this is not true. And we researchers should be uh, investing more resources in making uh, algorithms that are actually becoming more robust. So I would like to see that. Mm-hmm. So if I ask you what is your research focus now and which challenges you are looking up to following in the next years? Yes. So the research topics that we are covering in, uh, in my lab have to do with pushing the limits on vision-based navigation of drones. Mm-hmm. Pushing the limits means uh, basically working on a moonshot, on the next moonshot, something that is really, really, really hard. So I just got uh, a project uh, accepted by the European Research Council. It's a consolidated grant. So, uh, you know, this is a very, very hard problem. So, and running this actually pushed me, uh, you know, to really understand what are the, the limits of robotics and what should we, you know, focus on for the next five uh, years of, uh, of research. So. We are trying to actually build an alpha pilot or an alpha drone that could one day beat the best human pilot at the drone racing competition. You may say, ah, but okay, but this is a ludic application of drones, so who cares about the entertainment? And this is nothing to do with the entertainment. The point is that we want to push the limits. And to push the limits, we really have to work on very hard problems. The, the hardest problem for drones is to navigate agilely as good or even better than a human pilot. Today, we are, not, we are actually uh, much, much worse than human pilots. So autonomous drones are much, much worse than human pilots in terms of speed, versatility, robustness. If you compare the performance of an autonomous drone today, it can only fly at best at uh, you know, uh, three to five meters per second, while a human can fly, for example, up to uh, 30 or even 40 or more meters per second and in any sort of environment, and only relying on uh, feedback, visual feedback, by the way, by a single, from a single camera. While our best autonomous drones, like Scalio, for example, rely on uh, input from uh, six or more cameras, uh, inertial sensors, uh, and powerful computers. Humans don't, humans don't need that. So we need to really work on uh, perception, motion planning and control, and all these three topics simultaneously, by the way, rather than mm-hmm. decoupling them. So if we manage to achieve um, human-level performance of drone navigation, we will have one day drones that can be used in search and rescue applications to um, localize uh, survivors after an earthquake, for example, and deliver their position to the human rescue teams. Uh, so I, we are working on agile autonomous navigation. Well, agile means that the drones navigate uh, um, at their physical limit. And uh, this is very important because uh, the battery of drones uh, did not improve over the past 10 years. So drones can only fly for like 20, 30 minutes and will unlikely improve in the next 5, 10 years or at least until uh, fuel cells will actually become a commodity which will take a lot of time. And so in this case, the only way to improve the range of drones is to make them navigate more agile, so faster. Mm-hmm. But when you navigate faster, there is a lot of challenges that come. For example, how do you reduce the latency? So you need to work on new sensors, like for example, event cameras, or even new sensors that have not been invented in order to reduce uh, the time between when uh, uh, um, um, 
the, 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 the robot senses something until you know it sends the, the, the control action to his actuators. Also, we need to work on uh, reducing the latency of the algorithms as well, so perception algorithms, as well as uh, motion planning algorithms, uh, find better ways to also, uh, we also find uh, better algorithms to navigate among dynamic obstacles. I mean, robotics has been focusing for a very long time on uh, stationary environments, but the big challenge is actually to navigate you know, in, in dynamic environments. Imagine the drone as slaloming among, among hundreds of people, you know, if you want to actually use it in, in, a, in, a, in a disaster zone. Imagine, you know, a crowd of people fleeing after, from a tsunami and then a drone that actually flies, uh, you mm -hmm. know, among people yeah. or even in a, in a, in a crowded space or in a, in a cluttered environment, uh, like uh, in, in, in interiors. I mean, this is super challenging, mm -hmm. okay? I think that'd be interesting, and I would like to ask at this point, do you think design play a role, design of the, the shape of the drone and the material as well? Is you think there are challenges here for being safe for interaction with people? Yes, that's a very good question. So, currently, when we think of drones, we think either of um, multi-rotors like quadcopters mm -hmm. or hexacopters or octocopters, or we think of fixed wings. But actually, there are uh, also a few people, for example, Dario Floriana with PFL, mm -hmm. uh, also people at Berkeley, who are working on um, uh, uh, hybrid systems or even systems that are inspired by nature, like birds. So they are working on the so-called feathered drones. So these are um, artificial drones that actually have feathers, either artificial feathers or real <laughs> bird feathers, mm -hmm. Uh, that can also be folded uh, over time in order to mimic or um, to emulate actually the, the, the working principle of birds uh, and therefore also grasp objects while flying, uh, perching in uh, complex structures uh, like cables and so on. Uh, we are working actually together with Floriano and other partners on a European project called Aerial Core, which is about uh, developing new aerial systems, so hybrid systems uh, uh, that can be used to, uh, together with humans uh, to monitor, inspect uh, uh, power lines over hundreds of kilometers over the next uh, you know, five to ten years, and uh, also install insulators on, uh, on power lines, which is a very difficult task. And for this, we also need a new type of drones. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And I'm curious to ask you about when you go to the small level, micro level for drones, what are the really challenges you would face when you go to the smallest level for drones? So when you go to the micro uh, scale for drones, the main challenge is to find algorithms, simple algorithms that can actually run on low power processors. Mm -hmm. So for, for uh, big drones, like uh, the, the way uh, from 50 grams uh, uh, up, basically it uh, been found that the uh, that ninety percent of uh, the power of the drone is used to fly, and ten percent is actually used to um, for the computing power. Now uh, this ratio though decreases when uh, you scale down the drone. So in uh, when you scale down the drone, actually what happens is that now the computing power actually plays a bigger role. Uh, versus the power that is actually used uh, uh, to fly. Uh, I'm talking of the uh, nano-sized drones, like uh, a couple of centimeters. Mm -hmm. So in this, case, in this case, what you need to do is actually to have algorithms that, uh, you know, consume like a few dozens of milliwatts. How can you do that? So for doing this, uh, there is uh, a couple of projects that have, that have been developed both at ETH Zurich uh, in, uh, in China and also in, um, uh, at MIT. Uh, that basically are about co-designing software and uh, hardware in order to run these algorithms with very little power. I would like to mention the, um, the PALP processor developed at ETH called the Ultra Low Power uh, Processor that is capable of running sophisticated shallow neural networks, so with uh, you know, two, I mean, 10, 20 layers, CNNs, on a 64 milliwatt computer in real time at, at uh, 30 hertz and this is amazing 
I would also like to mention uh, the other project by MIT, I think it's called Navion, that is, uh, manages also to run uh, sophisticated visual inertial odometry algorithms that are important for the estimation on another 40 milliwatt computer that was co-designed together with the software. So this is very it's important basically to scale down basically this, uh, these computers, but at the same time develop uh, a tailored hardware together uh, while keeping the software in mind. So that's mm. very important. You don't want to use just a, a general custom ASIC, but you may want to develop something specifically for, for, your, for your hardware. Other things, uh, when you scale down, uh, are the sensors now, of course. So when you scale down, you cannot put, for example, uh, many cameras and so on, but rather maybe a single camera. You can also not uh, use LIDARs because they are too heavy, power hungry. Currently, you know, LIDARs mm -hmm. still consume 10 to 20 watts. Um, we have to wait for until, you know, uh, solid state LIDARs will become also a commodity, especially also low power, but it will take a long time. So at the moment, the Oliva Yelbo solution for low power, uh, small scale drones are actually cameras because they are passive, they do not emit uh, energy in the environment. Mm -hmm. and, and especially event cameras. So in the past six years, I have been working a lot on event cameras. These are bio-inspired vision sensors, so inspired by the human eye. They work significantly differently from standard cameras in that they do not output frames, but only events. Events are basically triggered by pixels that detect motion, relative motion. So that basically means that you have a drastic reduction in bandwidth and therefore in energy. Event camera consume 100 times less than standard camera, so like an, on average one milliwatt versus one watt. So obviously, on a micro drone of uh, the scale of uh, two centimeters, obviously you would like to use uh, something like event cameras. But then again, you need to couple these uh, low power sensors with very low power um, computing platforms. And there, I mean, there is a lot uh, to improve. At the moment, if you consider that uh, you know many people are actually uh, <laughs> scaling up in mm -hmm. terms of GPU. And when you scale down the size of the platform, you have to actually make the algorithms smarter, but also um, uh, you have to create new hardware, maybe new GPUs or VPUs that can actually consume very low power. And uh, in this direction, I would say, I would like to mention, for example, the Myriad 2 processors by Movidius are a, a very good, a strong effort in the direction of developing, a, you know, something similar to GPUs, actually it's called the visual processing units. So VPU specifically tailored for running, uh, sophisticated neural network computer vision algorithm that can run on less than one watt uh, processors in the super small. Okay, so there, there are efforts, mm -hmm. but I mm -hmm. think we need much more efforts. <laughs> I think it's very interesting uh, point you highlighted. And yeah, it was to investigate more. I agree with you with that. And I think this is a question I would like to ask you. What do you think the biggest limitation of the current deep learning method and reinforcement learning for your work? You will use your yeah, the current limitations of current intimidation learning or reinforcement learning uh, um, algorithms is data. We need data, mm -hmm. right? We collect a lot of data in our experiments, for, for example. We, uh, so uh, when we started working on machine learning for uh, controlling drones, uh, the first paper in 2016, we needed 20,000 images in order to teach a drone to recognize trails in a forest. So a very limited task, you know, a, a drone that can only navigate trails. Then later we scaled up and we went to drones. Uh, we went to the task of uh, teaching drones uh, to navigate autonomously in um, in a, a city streets. So basically, we collected that um, uh, hours and hours of video recordings to teach drones to respect traffic rules and so on. Actually, we downloaded videos from the Udacity dataset, which provides both images as well as ground truth. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, when you want to scale up and actually uh, have uh, a general purpose in your network that can solve the different tasks, uh, you need more and more data. So what we have been focusing on in the last couple of years is uh, transferring from the simulation to the real world. So basically the main problem that uh, we need to solve as a community is uh, reducing the simulation to reality gap. So making the simulators as good as possible and closer to the reality such that when you then deploy the neural network onto the real world, it will actually work without any fine tuning. Um, what people, the main efforts have been on making this uh, uh, 
simulation environments as photorealistic as possible and so people including us are more and more using like unity or a real engine that have been used for video games or even by big uh, movie corporations and this is good when you want to work of course on, on perception algorithms that uh, you know have to deal with um, a lot of details and especially you know uh, in a cluttered environments but for navigation i would argue that actually photorealism is not really important in fact we have now a line of papers where we show that we can transfer the neural network to drones from simulating in new photorealistic simulators like gazebo so last week we actually announced a new rss paper in the, the conference robotics science and systems where we actually show for the first time a drone that can learn to perform acrobatic maneuvers in the air like uh, loops multiple loops uh, and so on uh, and was trained completely in simulation we have a neural network that actually converts uh, images and inertial sensors directly to model commands so it's an end-to-end -end, um, uh, policy and we train the network in gazebo by generating um, sensor abstractions, and that's the key thing. So finding the key sensor abstractions such that you don't need to actually simulate photorealism in your environment. So for example, in this work, we, uh, in the, uh, we simulate a drone so with the real physics, of course, with the real robot dynamics and some linear aerodynamic effects that observes feature tracks and also um, realistic uh, inertial readings so from a, a simulated IMU and, uh, and then we transfer to the real drone so the trick to make this uh, seem to real gap very small was mm -hmm. uh, to have used um, sensor abstractions in the form of feature tracks and inertial measurement readings instead of images if you rely on images, of course, images in simulation are very far from reality, unless you invest a lot of money, by the way, and a lot of, a lot of, a lot of data for trading. But instead, we, were, we, we extract the feature tracks from the images, so features always look the same, both in simulation and in the real world. They are corners, you know, just two-dimensional pixels. And these are, are actually very easy to transfer to the real world. And in fact, it works in the real world without any fine tuning. So, of course, uh, you can claim, ah, but this works only for acrobatic maneuvers. In mm -hmm. fact, now we are focusing on more sophisticated tasks like, um, uh, for example, navigation in cluttered environments, like uh, in uh, trying to teach a drone to navigate agilely in, uh, in, uh, uh, in an earthquake damaged building. So we are simulating sensor abstractions in this kind of environments in order to reduce the simulation reality gap when we then transfer to a real uh, mock-up search and rescue environment so these you see there are small tricks that can be applied we just need you know research to be very broad uh, and you know never stick to one solution just because this is mainstream okay mm -hmm. i think that's yeah. super interesting as well and maybe you highlight something interesting when you go to more sophisticated scale because we have interviewed Starsky, the autonomous truck uh, company that fall in, in last February. And one of the issues that you don't have this fun simulation is really tricky to capture the reward. So maybe there's a question here. When you go to more sophisticated, what do you think more abstraction you can get in your simulation? What is the most important feature for a student listening to... to replicate in your simulation so that you can close the gap very good question okay i see here two questions and i hope i remember both the first one is uh, the most important things uh, to have in a simulator is uh, make your simulator as realistic as possible so uh, photorealism is one thing but it's not just it we are there is also for example aerodynamic effects if you work on drones there are beautiful physics engines, but they are physics engines by themselves. Uh, difficult is to actually couple them together with other robotic simulators like uh, Gazebo, for example, or um, ARSIM, um, or Unity, or Unreal Engine, and so on. We are working on that. Mm -hmm. So please, I'm, I'm talking to the students, work on coupling you know, different simulators together and focus on really make them as accurate as possible one of the main challenges in simulation 
of uh, sensors is, for example, how to um, mimic the real noise of sensors. Mm. i give you an example. Let's, uh, uh, many of you students will know Carla, the Carla simulator that was uh, uh, um, created by Intel, uh, I think, a couple of years ago. Mm. Carla now has become the, 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 you know, the, main, the mainstream simulator for autonomous driving. However, when you look at the, the simulated cars, they move perfectly straight, like no one would ever be able to do. They also move at constant speed and so on. They also mean, um, simulate sensors that do not exist. For example, a perfect LiDAR, a perfect Kinect sensor, a perfect depth camera, or a perfect camera, where perfect means that there is either no noise, or the noise is just, just Gaussian, and it does not simulate, for example, um, uh, missing data. So if you have worked on uh, depth cameras like Kinect, the first thing that you experience is that uh, there, are, there is a lot of holes in your reconstructed depth. I mean, and there are papers that actually have worked on really fine these sensors. We need to integrate these really fine uh, sensors models into the simulator. That's super important. Yeah. And also really fine the motion of the vehicles. Also, number two, aerodynamic effects. If you work on drones, aerodynamic effects are actually at the moment simulated only up to the linear drag or fuselage drag. You know, but the linear usually. Uh, rotor drag also, but all in the linear. Um, uh, order. So we need higher orders, you know, dynamics for, for drones as well. Wind gust usually is not simulated unless you use sophisticated, you know, uh, particle simulators that exist, but they are more sophisticated, they require skills and so on, and time to learn. Um, another thing to look at is differentiable uh, physics that actually, uh, you know, is uh, um, allowing our simulators to uh, or, you know, particle simulators to become a little bit faster by exploiting also neural networks that try to approximate basically the real physics. Another thing that uh, I would like to mention is, uh, and it's difficult though to model in, uh, to simulate in simulators, are corner cases. What are corner cases? Mm -hmm. Corner cases are situations that occur very rarely in reality. Let's think of uh, autonomous driving. Autonomous driving. Uh, it's a tough problem because um, we are training our algorithms, both uh, model-based algorithms and neural network algorithms, on simulation. And simulation, unfortunately, is too perfect. But uh, now it's too perfect because it's difficult to simulate uh, in accidents. You know, mm -hmm. so safety is the biggest problem in autonomous driving. So ideally, you would like to simulate hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of accidents. We don't have data for that at all. So who has the data? Actually, the big corporates. And I would like to mention here Elon Musk, Tesla's company. Why? Because they deploy more than 300,000 cars worldwide. They're collecting a lot of data, and especially data from, from crashes, you know, car crashes, incidents, and so on. Um, so this is a huge amount of data that this company has at their disposal to actually refine their algorithm. But it's not available to the community, unfortunately. Mm. But there are tons of YouTube videos from dash cams, especially from Russia, where actually almost every person in Russia has a dash cam for safety, for, uh, for, uh, for their insurance company. Basically, there are thousands of these videos on YouTube where you actually can, uh, you have accidents happening. I've seen a few works, but unfortunately too few works that are trying to uh, build better simulators that simulate corner cases after these YouTube videos of car crashes. I would like to see that happening more often. Also, we like to see, for example, simulators or algorithms that can tackle, for example, things that happen in uh, very crowded uh, environments. So there are many places on the world, many cities that are super cluttered, uh, over densely, highly densely populated. <laughs> Since I'm Italian, I would like to mention mm -hmm. Napoli, Naples. I mean, mm -hmm. it's the, the traffic there is chaos. But I also went several times to, 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 to India, I was in Delhi, I was in Bangalore, and the traffic is it's huge there. I would like to see data sets and simulators that actually incorporate those corner cases that certainly do not appear in the streets of San Francisco or New York. You see, the world is full of opportunities, and I would like to see actually people taking advantage of this. I really would like to thank you for this clear point. And I, I have a question from, from one student here asking, last year uh, Elon Musk stated Anyone relaying on later is doomed. It's just asking your opinion about the statement and uh, how you think we can expand that if you can reach level five autonomy with only camera. 
So Elon Musk is a very sharp uh, and um, bright uh, mind. So every time that he makes a statement, we have to interpret that statement uh, from his point of view, mm-hmm. not from our point, or from the normal point of view. When Elon Musk says that people working on ladder are doomed, the main criticism to him was, uh, oh, yeah, sure. But I mean, at the moment, cameras do not perform the same uh, as a LiDAR, so do not see in the dark and so on. So we keep uh, working on LiDAR, yeah, sure. But Elon Musk was not referring to the next 10 years. He's referring to the future. In the future, of course, we will have only uh, or mainly camera-based solutions, right? Uh, because sensors will be better, algorithms will be better. But his point was, if a human can actually reason that well, why can't a machine, why can't we make a machine work as good as, uh, as a human? So let's focus on that. Uh, and by the way, Tesla is using radar. Okay, mm-hmm. so <laughs> it's not true that yeah. they are only relying on uh, on, uh, on on cars. Just mm-hmm. that the la- radars are some a little bit better than radar because they they can actually see also through you know through fog and uh, rain, and snow, and so on. So they are also using other sensors. And uh, so, but uh, in general, what I like about this statement is the fact that uh, we should focus on very hard problems. Okay, and not uh, stick to the mainstream. So LiDAR has dominated the, the robotics research for 40 years, from 1980 until today. There are still a lot of papers on LiDAR. I would like to people to depart a little bit from the mainstream and start working on trying to do the same things uh, with new sensors. So this can be cameras, even cameras, or, or, or new sensors that still have to be invented. Um, so that's, that's my take. In this, mm-hmm. in this statement. Yeah. Work on hard problems, tough problems. Yeah. Were there any direction you thought would work out very well, but empirical result proved otherwise, something different? Ah, so whether I saw that the direction that yeah, it would work very well, yeah. But the empirical result proved something was like outstanding, or maybe something you didn't expect. And maybe something interesting. I don't know if you have uh, witnessed something like that. But yeah. Uh huh. Yes, of course. I mean, every year I am amazed by uh, things uh, that I didn't expect them to work very well. Now, the list is long, to be honest. Uh, for example, one thing that I've never worked on, but I'm extremely fascinated, are uh, touch sensors. Okay, so mm-hmm. I'm not an expert of touch sensors. However. I've been uh, 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 astonished by the results, especially in the richness of this resolution of touch sensors over the last couple of years through cameras. So they use a gel, they interpose a gel between the surface to explore with the touch sensor and the, the, the camera. And then they, they basically uh, map, you know, pixels to force, to a force field. There is a great paper by a PhD student of Raffaello Andrea at ETH Zurich that does that through a neural network. I, I was amazed by the result because typically what people would do is that they, when they use this uh, camera-based touch sensors is that they only regress uh, a single force vector, but they actually were able to regress, you know, a, for, a force field over a one megapixel resolution. So one million vectors. I was amazed at that. To be honest, that, uh, that made me jump out of my chair. Other things. Um, I was, uh, I mean, extremely impressed by results also in the computer vision community, by the group of uh, Vlad and Colton, for example, with which I also have the, 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 the luck to cooperate, which is basically uh, learning to see in the dark. So again, mm-hmm. deep learning can solve a lot of problems like a magic wand. But basically, they show that they can actually teach a network to reconstruct. Uh, uh, daylight images uh, from uh, dark images where humans uh, do not uh, see uh, the signal, but actually the signal is there, so it can be done. Similar to this, actually inspired by this work, we also train the neural network to, for example, reconstruct super resolution, high dynamic range, and no motion blur images using only event cameras. So event cameras were thought to be only, you know, um, left for. Uh, uh, for uh, very simple industrial applications, so for only where only ha- um, uh, highly highly speed moving uh, uh, objects would uh, would be sensed, but actually we showed that, that event cameras have the same carry the same signal as standard cameras, and therefore can be used for all the same computer vision tasks where uh, you know we have used standard cameras for the fa- for the last uh, 60 years. So this is a big uh, leap forward in the event camera community because it means 
the signal is there, you can use event cameras uh, to basically work uh, on all the tasks for, of computer vision. And uh, now, though, with the added value that event cameras do not have uh, motion blur and have a very large uh, dynamic range. Other things, uh, let me think. Um, uh, yeah, drone navigation. Drone navigation, of course. I mean, uh, Skydio. Skydio is a, a, a startup uh, um, that evolved now in a big company. Uh, they are based in Silicon Valley and they showed mm -hmm. the power of combining robust uh, motion planning and uh, visual perception, passive perception algorithm into a product in the first drone that can really amazingly slalom among trees while keeping track of a subject and, and following the subject in a cluttered environment like forest or other com uh, very complex scenarios. Nobody had done this before, certainly mm -hmm. in the industry level. There were only a few algorithms, but they actually raised the bar now for all robotics research. That's astonishing. That means we also need to raise the bar in research of robotics, of course. Uh, do you want me to continue? That's very interesting. I'm enjoying. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, we need. If you have more points, it would be really interesting for students as well to know. Okay, let me think. Let me think. Uh, yes, for example, uh, uh, I mean, for for thirty years of research, people have been saying, ah, let's work on active vision, active perception. That means uh, basically, you know, you can uh, install the camera on a, on, a, on a robot and then move the robot in order to improve the quality of perception. But I never saw really, you know, things, uh, results that would really prove extremely uh, the usefulness of active perception. But now in the past uh, three, four years, there has been an explosion of perception-aware algorithms, perception-aware motion planning algorithms, like PAMPC, that stands for perception-aware uh, model quality control, that basically incorporate perception objectives or perception constraint into the motion planning problem. And they solve it simultaneously with the motion planning. Before people were actually solving uh, uh, estimation, perception and control separately, but now the idea is to actually bridge the gap and therefore reduce the overall latency by solving all of them as a single optimization. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's also exploding now, so it's beautiful to see. Um, uh, I would like to stop you. Yeah, thanks so much for that. Yeah. And I'm um, curious to ask you this question. Do you feel that the current technology for deep learning, that the startup can build application that can be scaled without having the resources of Google or Amazon or Facebook? Oof, wow. Uh, difficult. Um, difficult to. No, the, the question is not difficult. The, the, the difficult is yeah, to actually achieve the same performance as Google and Facebook without using their resources. That's why. I encourage all the students to partner with those people, if you can, or at least uh, to use their data sets. I mean, now, uh, Google especially, Google, uh, I mean, uh, they, they, are, they release always a lot of data sets. So use those data sets as much as you can. If you can collaborate with them, um, uh, go to this Google Summer of Code, uh, mm -hmm. for example. Internships, they help a lot, of course. Amazon as well, Amazon Mechanical Turk, but it's not all about that. Of course, they have a huge uh, GPU facilities that can uh, share. Both Amazon and Google actually share their facilities for doing a parallel, uh, you know, for running parallel uh, um, algor uh, algorithms on their on their cluster of, uh, of GPUs. Um, so take advantage of them if you cannot afford them for your lab. Um, but it's true. I mean, it's difficult to, to stay up, uh, you know, uh, to, to catch up with what they are doing because, I mean, I mean uh, they have a, a, a access to a huge amount of data. Uh, however, uh, I think uh, we, academia, are still, um, the best we can do is to, uh, to partner with them. So uh, we are also partnering with them, of course, mm -hmm. a lot. Uh, one way to partner with them, of course, is to basically, you know, engage in, uh, also in, uh, in participating in their uh, conferences, whenever there is a, an invited talk of Google in your uh, in your university, go attend it and try to you know ask these persons how to who you can actually uh, participate in what they are doing, collaborate. There are, there are a lot of venues that uh, that they have to participate to collaborate with them. But another thing I forgot to say. Um, what can we do, we academics in general? In general, <laughs> it's perceived that we academics are only now a, a pool of, uh, you know, a, a training a, a school for, for talent. But it's not true. I mean, we still have uh, the academic freedom 
to work on whatever we want. Because the problem is that once you are uh, working at the company, then usually you have to work on the problems, unless uh, you work at Google and they give you this 20% time to, to, drink, to think freely and work on whatever you want. But in general, in academia, we enjoy the freedom. Mm -hmm. I would say uh, if you are working in academia and you are a young PhD student, also it's good to, to, to spend a few internships at these big companies uh, because there is only to gain. But also what I'm experiencing is that I'm now starting collaborating with these companies without any uh, exchange of funding, for example. I don't care because there is a lot to gain from their expertise. And we also, they also have something to gain from our expertise. For example, uh, there are not many labs, unfortunately, working on vision-based autonomous navigation of drones. Uh, there are probably only five in the world. So we have the luck that many companies approach us, or especially big companies. Now we have a big project with Intel, for example, and they realize, you know, the Intel is great at deep learning, but they, they lack all the resources for autonomous navigation, and then they partner with people like us. And same now we are doing with Google and other companies. So not necessarily there is to be, you know, an exchange in funding sometimes, you know, but uh, just a nice intellectual collaboration when you're exchanging brains. This is actually possible. And I would say now with, uh, in the world of the shared, uh, you know, especially today that, uh, you know, this year we had this uh, Zoom, everything was uh, via Zoom. I think mm -hmm. uh, we have more opportunities to, uh, to interact with these people and uh, to have more interesting discussion than before, probably because people are more accessible than in a conference with 10,000 participants. I agree. Um, well, I mean, there are many things to say. We could mm -hmm. actually workshop on this topic. Yeah. I also ask, I want to ask you this question, how we can ensure a diversity of approaches, get exposure they deserve and prevent an overinvestment in a limited set of techniques? In other way, how we can enable more inclusive culture around competitive ideas in robotics and AI field, for, uh, even in your field here? Yeah, very good. Actually, I agree with you. That is, sometimes it's not very inclusive. Mm -hmm. uh, I think... Uh, so in order to be inclusive uh, there, we need uh, to give the opportunity to um, students who come from, uh, uh, for example, not uh, um, endowed research labs uh, that have a very small facility or no facilities at all, their opportunity to prove that they're actually, you know, uh, like a valid, uh, you know, <laughs> Uh, researchers here competitions especially competitions based in simulation are very very uh, uh, useful for the for, for actually um, finding uh, um, promoting actually you know uh, the research in a certain field and especially as, um, finding uh, especially for um, giving the opportunity to students uh, that are coming from uh, uh, not a rich research lab to, to, to contribute. Mm. Simulations are uh, open source. They're accessible to everyone. So they allow democratizing robotics and perception research, for example, mm. a lot. Uh, and they are coming. But in order to foster the use of the simulator, we need to have competitions. And competitions have been uh, shown, or there is also a recent research paper by, by Peter Cork uh, that shows that, that uh, competitions are the only way to make, uh, to boost the progress of a, a, sci of a field, science field. Uh, think of the DARPA grand challenges. Uh, I mean, uh, we wouldn't have the, the, the self-driving cars today without the DARPA grand challenges. Uh, and same can be, the same can be said for drones. Uh, and remember that some of these competitions started only in simulation, by the way. So the first screen was done in simulation. Um, also, the, uh, the aeronaut by NASA, the first screen was done in simulation. Last year, Lucky Martin and the Drone Racing League, they put up the Alpha Pilot competition, where the first screening was done in simulation. More than 400 people worldwide participated in this, competi in this competition. It was actually surprising to see that there were people in the top, in the top 30 they were actually coming from not known research labs. That was beautiful, mm. you know. And actually, some of the known research labs were very down in the list. Amazing. Okay. Mm. I mean, uh, famous research labs didn't make it in the, even in the top 20. That's amazing. So, I mean, yeah. talent are everywhere. And it's beautiful. That's, uh, that's uh, what science should be. It should be open to everyone. But now I think that competitions are probably one of the few ways to actually do that, to make it possible because competitions spark the interest 
uh, in return of visibility, in return of money, or just, you know, just the visibility itself, and uh, uh, the spark interest, um, and, and by competitions in simulation, especially. So the simulation, I would like to, again, emphasize the role of the simulation environments in this. Mm -hmm. I agree. That's right. Because the lower the entry bar, okay, the low, mm -hmm. so the democratize uh, robotics, what is so expensive, I mean, Consider that 50% of research and robotics is spent in engineering only if you want to work on real world robots. So you need the simulation. So again, having good simulators also is also helpful, of course. Yeah. I agree with you. Um, I, I, we were close to the end and we have a couple of questions. The first one, if a student wanted to transfer their project from the lab to startup, what do you think the most important factor to have a successful startup? Since you have this expertise, and also one of your uh, venture uh, was Oculus uh, in Zurich. So, what 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 do you think the most important factors? So, if the question is, uh, what would you tell to a student who wants to yeah, go from we a wanted to university to a startup? Yeah. How research. We, yeah. I I have uh, two words. Do it, really do it. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the reason why we are not innovating so much is because of lack of startups in robotics compared to computer vision. And the reason is because, of course, uh, robotics is harder, it's more expensive, but also, you know, um, sometimes you just have to, to be brave enough to do it, even maybe if you don't have all the competencies in the field, you will find them on the way. Um, I'm amazed by those startups that start very small, maybe from people who are not in the field. Mm. There are some startups in Zurich who turn out to be very successful. They are working on robotics despite not coming from the robotics field, but coming from graphics, computer vision, mm. or, uh, or uh, human robot interaction, or uh, uh, GNSS, so navigation systems. Uh, amazingly, they actually man managed to be successful even in robotics. Why? Because they had a big vision. They have a cool idea, a big vision, and that's important. Think big. They were very good disseminators. That's very important. That means they were able to explain their idea in simple words. So pitch your idea mm -hmm. to investors. Find the money. Investors are everywhere. Once you have the money, keep eye on, um, uh, keep always in mind your vision, why you and why you do it. By the way, to improve the quality of life, to, to make yeah. the world a better place. I mean, there are many motivations. Keep your motivation in mind always, uh, because it's important. Otherwise, you have a burnout. And and then uh, go and pitch to find the money, because there is a lot of money around. And then you will find the, the people. By the way, if you're super motivated, you're passionate for it, you'll find the people that will actually fill uh, the lacunas in, in, in your idea. Yeah. If you are a graphics person and you miss a robotics, but you have a great vision, you will find the talented robotics, robotics to add to your team. So do it. And don't be ashamed to enter a field just because it's different from what you studied. Uh, you know, now I, I come into contact with many startups in, in Zurich or in Switzerland that are actually daring to do robotics, although they are not coming from robotics directly. Mm. That's really beautiful advice, yeah. Um, do, do you think ego is important for the researcher? Ego? Yeah. Mm, what is more important is self-confidence, believe in yourself, mm. and this is difficult sometimes. Um, sometimes uh, good researchers are not very self-confident. I noticed that even in my PhD students. Uh, so they, you have to be trained. So ask your uh, advisor, your university, attend courses to actually train the skills where you are not very proficient at, exactly like uh, you know, being a good disseminator and especially earning self-confidence. Yeah. Self-confidence is more important. Yeah. And if I ask you what something... Ego, no. Arrogance. If ego means arrogance, no. Arrogance will not take you anywhere. No. Self-confidence. Mm -hmm. Of course. Overconfidence is not, is not uh, uh, advisable. But uh, we have to be confident in ourselves. So sometimes you have to be capable of recognizing that uh, you're a, you think your idea is really cool. And, mm. uh, some, and often to be revolutionary, you have to go against the current. You have to you know you have to swim against the stream, unfortunately. Yeah. It's part of the game. Yeah. And apart from that, what is the most important trait you gained while you work in, in academia for this year? Something you learn it. I learned the self confidence, what, what else? Um, um, another 
you can learn, of course, in academia, it's been uh, to, to, to explain complicated things in simple words. That's very important. I often go to conferences or workshops where even for me it's difficult uh, to understand what the speaker means because he's speaking only in his own for to people in his own field. Mm -hmm. And that's unfortunately too frequent. It happens too often in, in, yeah. the, in the communities. So I would like to see that happening less. So being a good disseminator. What else? Uh, Multidisciplinarity is very important, yes, mm -hmm. yes, super important. So interact as much as you can with people that are in different fields. Uh, I actually affiliated in my group also to the Institute of Neuroinformatics that, uh, you know, seven years ago, I believe they were very far from what I was doing, but now actually we are working with neuromorphic cameras and neuromorphic chips and spiking neural networks. I mean, yeah. it's beautiful, I mean, to, to multidisciplinarity. We're also working on NCCR Robotics, which is a an excellent center in Switzerland for, uh, for robotics research where there are people coming from uh, manipulation, uh, rehabilitation robotics, uh, neuroscience, uh, so psychologists. So we have uh, two meetings a day where you, you attend uh, basically talks from these people and then uh, you, know, you have uh, coffee breaks and lunch breaks and then you, yeah. have, you can exchange some ideas and sometimes the, the reviewers push us to collaborate. And uh, to be honest, it was very difficult at the beginning. But now we found some, uh, some projects where we are really collaborating. So lastly, what is the best advice was given to you personally and professionally and was life changing for you? Ooh. The first that comes to my mind, but there are many more, but the first that comes to my mind is learn to say no. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it was given to me from uh, Ligina Ariananda, who was a PhD student with Ronnie Brooks, and she was giving this advice to Ronnie Brooks, so I mm. took it immediately from day one, learn to say no. Uh, when I started uh, my assistant professorship eight years ago, I was approached by a lot of people who wanted to collaborate with me or companies and so on. Uh, it was, I was overwhelmed. So uh, I was, uh, I, it was difficult to say no because I thought that, uh, you know, I would actually offend or, mm. or then also this would undermine possible future collaboration. But no, in the end, you have to <laughs> learn to say no for many things. So it's very important, be honest. Be honest, the first advice is think the things upfront. Of course, being polite, but if you disagree also with a researcher, even with a famous researcher, say your point of view. That's the second advice. And what else? Um, stay open, learn continuously. Don't think that because you are in a certain hierarchy in your company or in your university, you don't have the right or you have the right to speak, to speak up or no. Be humble all the time and learn also from your students. I wouldn't be what I am today if I didn't learn from my students. I'm learning every day from my students, from my future students, even master students. Mm -hmm. They have a lot to teach, you know? So it's a, it's a, it's a co-learning process. Yeah, mm. it's really, we, I really like your point, and very, very important. And at the end of the podcast, I would like to thank for time. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Thanks, thanks, thanks to you. Thank you.